Well, the way we teach people to lead change in business schools is primarily from a kind of a process and structure point of view, right? As if we could figure out the right answer and then implement it. But when you're dealing in a complex world, nobody knows what the right answer is. Welcome to the Inspire Podcast, where we examine what it takes to intentionally inspire. I'm your host, Bart Egnall, President and CEO of The Humphrey Group. And if you've ever asked yourself, how can you develop an authentic leadership presence? Or how can you tell stories that have people hanging off every word? Well, then this podcast is for you. And it's not just for executives. This is a podcast for anyone who wants to influence and inspire others in their work, but also in their life. My guest on today's episode of the Inspire Podcast is Jervis Bush, and uh, Jervis is a professor at um, the Beatty School of Business in Simon Fraser University in Vancouver. He's also an incredibly accomplished academic. He's an entrepreneur. Uh, he's an HR uh, thought leader. So, Jervis, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Happy yeah, to be here. Great, great to have you. And um, I should tell you, I don't think I told you this when we first spoke, but uh, your now business partner, Michael Cody, who put us together, was um, uh, was many years ago. He told me the story of how he met you. He was at a, a company that I did work for at the Humphrey Group, uh, MDS, and he told me that you know he'd been through some incredible um, management consulting reorg and was kind of um, disengaged and then went to school at SFU and met you. And every assumption that he had about leading change was kind of um, put upside down. And ultimately, he decided you're someone he has to work with. So Michael put us together and um, spoke so highly of, uh, of your work. So maybe just uh, by way of introduction, you can give us the um, the background on, on what you teach and, and what your work is, because uh, that certainly piqued my interest. Well, thanks. Um, well, my, my work's evolved over the years, and, and uh, maybe that's the best way to kind of put it in context. Uh, back in the 80s, I was involved in the movement towards um, team-based organizations, team-based manufacturing, um, and uh, was on the corporate OD staff at General Motors while I was doing my doctorate in the U.S. And, um, and at the time, we thought the solution, like, and of course, a lot of organizations, that the buzzword that was empowerment, quality of work life, inverting the pyramid, you know, de-layering, and we thought we had the answer, uh, which was called uh, socio-technical systems redesign, building these team-based plants, and they were fantastic. And and then uh, around 1990, the research started to show that many of these really successful, very collaborative uh, kinds of organizations reverted back to command and control within about six to eight years, which I found very depressing. And around 1990-91, I took a sabbatical for a year and went to work for a startup called Stentor as the internal OD consultant to one of the executive vice presidents. And you probably don't remember Stentor. It was um, the first move in deregulation of the Canadian phone market. And um, back then, you know, every province had its own monopoly telephone company, uh, which was quite unusual because most countries had one. But um, and they had seen what had happened with AT and T and with British Telecom, so they knew what was coming. And um, and the first thing that got deregulated was the business long distance market. So what the different provincial companies decided to do to meet 
what would now be um, national competitors was to create this spinoff called Stentor, and they all threw some money in it, and they, they created a poof company that was going to take on the deregulated long-distance market. And my job was to take these employees who were leaving the monopoly telephone companies and coming into Stentor and and help build a really empowered, you know, really lean, mean, fast-moving company. And, you know, we had great people, and we had a clear vision, and we had a great structure, and we had good leadership, and it still didn't work. (laughs) (laughs) That must have been humbling. (laughs) It really was. It really was. And uh, I'm sitting there going, what the hell is going on, you know? And and one day I'm sitting in this meeting, and I realize what's going on in this meeting is that people are saying things, but as they're saying things, like I've got on my meeting face, and you know everybody. And the thing was, every everybody desperately wanted to create a highly collaborative, you know, empowered kind of organization. I was focused on the middles, mm-hmm. and and uh, the boss was a highly collaborative boss. And people are sitting there, and everybody's nodding their head, and we're moving along. But as people are talking, I'm thinking, mm, I don't quite agree with that, but I'll take that offline. I don't think it's quite like that, but, you know, I'll, I'll talk about that later. And and I realized we're all doing that, hmm. you know? And 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 as I started to really pay attention to that, what I started to realize that what goes on so often in organizations is people are are make are, are making sense of what's taking place. And that, and that we're sense-making beings, right? We're compelled to make sense. But typically, if what's going on doesn't seem quite right or I don't quite agree with it or, you know, my boss is doing something, that, eh, you know, rather than go talk to my boss about it, I go talk to somebody else about it, mm-hmm. <laughs> my colleague, my wife, whatever. And then we make up, we make sense of it, right? Which essentially is we make up a story that makes sense of what that other person or that other group or, is doing and then start to forget it's a story and start to act on it as if it's the truth. And, and I think what happens is, and, and this theory I developed was that the reason collaborative organizations fail over time is because the stories we make up tend to be worse than the reality. And because we don't check out those stories, then over time, the organization becomes uh, more and more toxic. And people are, and, and as we started to study this with my, with my graduate students, we consistently found about four out of five conflicts, interpersonal conflicts in organizations were based on stories people had made up that they hadn't checked out. And, and, this, and this is why, you know, I, I thought it'd be so interesting to have you on because, you know, you think about storytelling as a tool and I've had people on the pod talking about, you know, how you use stories to persuade, to inspire. But I think you're, you're really looking at stories, you know, and how the stories that people tell and the kind of leadership, um, you know, roles that are taking place, how th- this can get in the way of creating, you know, as you described a center, but even today, the change that, that organizations are trying to bring about. I, well, I make a distinction between, you know, using stories to inspire, which mm-hmm. I understand, you know, leaders doing, and I, you know, and definitely organizations have core storylines, shared stories, and they have a huge impact on how people make sense of what's going on and what they think. But the kind of stories I'm talking about right now are the ones that get made up around the water cooler, mm-hmm. you know, and typically like, you know, what happens when there's any sort of vacuum of information in an organization, you know, we know there's an impending merger, but we don't know much about it. 
I mean, the stories that flood into the vacuum are not pretty stories. Mm-hmm. They're not happy stories, you know? <laughs> so in the face of any sort of ambiguity, the stories people make up, you know, I, I send you an email, you don't respond, right? Well, I might ask you about it, or I might just make up a story about why didn't you respond to my email? What, what I started to realize was that, you know, everybody is constantly creating their own experience. Partly that's through their sense-making, but everybody's having a different experience all the time. And we don't really take that into account in trying to figure out how do we manage that and how do we manage change and how do we learn from our collective experience. Mm-hmm. And, right, and all transformational change, I think, that's truly transformational, requires a period of time of inquiry where mm-hmm. we're inquiring together collectively. Like if you try to impose transformational change from the top down, that, never, that almost mm-hmm. never works. The only way it works is you close everything down and you start over again. Hmm. So let, let me right? jump in there because I think, you know, a lot of people listening right now, I mean, look, the world has changed more for many people in business in the last year than in the previous decade combined. Right. And, and I think now with the future, we just are talking about, you know, what is there, what does the future look like? No one really knows. I think the one constant is people in business are going to have to lead change. So, you you've come to some hard won wisdom about some mistaken assumptions that people have about leading change. You just articulated one. What are some other what are some mistaken assumptions that people should be aware of? Some blind spots that you've seen in your work for those who want to lead change. Well, the way we teach people to lead change in business schools is primarily from a kind of a process and structure point of view. Mm-hmm. Right? as if we could figure out the right answer and then implement it. But when you're dealing in a complex world, nobody knows what the right answer is. And the right answer keeps changing because there are so many variables in flow. So if you look at the strategy literature right now on how to go about changing in complexity or leading in complexity, there's two solutions, right? One is to pretend it's not really that complex to, or, or to find ways to turn it into a complicated situation where you can apply the models and formulas and big data and all that. The other, and and the one I've seen work, and this is what I write about, is you work with the people who are going to have to change, get them involved in conversations where they come up with ideas that they're willing to act on, and then you try as many of those as you can and you learn as you go. And we call this the generative change model, Hmm. right, as opposed to the plan change model. So it's more of a it's more of a, a the top holding a space and managing a process. So like if you, like I have this little model I show people. If you look at it, where leaders decide what the change is mm-hmm. and then they drive the process. The data is about you know that works about one out of four times. Like wow, that. that's so low. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But when when leaders lead the process. But the stakeholders, the people who are actually going to have to change, they're the ones who decide what the changes are. It works more than 90% of the huh. time. Now, that's yeah. probably, I mean, you know, that probably feels very uh, scary for leaders, right? Because it's putting them in, yeah, a, in exactly. a position where, you know, you're, you're in charge of the process, but you're not actually in charge of deciding what the change is going to be. How, how do you that's overcome right. or what advice do you give to leaders who kind of start to, you know, their heartbeat starts going up when they hear that, that guidance? Yeah. Well, I agree with you. And, and, you know, I think you just, there's just now quite a lot of literature, quite a lot of examples of you get much more change, much more rapidly in a complex situation using a generative change approach. 
Whereas, like, if you know what the cause-effect relationships are in something, if you can apply technical logic to a situation, then you can use expertise and drive it chopped down. But, you know, Ron Heifetz is at Harvard. He says, you know, one of the, one of the greatest failures of leadership is to treat an adaptive challenge like a technical problem. And most of the really complex issues leaders face these days are adaptive challenges. Hmm. And the thing about adaptive challenges, there was no one right answer. Number one, there's no one right answer. Number two, what will work today won't work tomorrow. And what worked yesterday won't work today. And so, so you're much better off. And, and number three, any solution to an adaptive challenge is going to create a new problem. And how do you define, just so I know, how do you define an adaptive challenge? So an adaptive challenge is a situation where you've got a lot of moving parts, you've got a lot of complexity, it's hard to even define what the problem is, right? In order to create the kind of change that's going to be required, you're going to have to change not only what people do, but how they think, their mindsets, their attitudes and values, which means they need to be engaged in that change process. And you're going to have to, let me yeah. give you two more. Yeah, please. And it, yeah, to adapt requires... Um, Experiments, mm-hmm. long term, trying this, trying that, right? And most importantly, right, um, whatever you do to adapt to the situation now, the situation will change. <laughs> you never actually solve an adaptive challenge. You manage it. I mean, it sounds like the world of business now. You know, we've, we've probably heard this yeah. acronym VUCA, you know, which is... That's got, what I'm talking about. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And, and so, you know... For me, the solution to any of those problems is when you want to take on the problem, but in addition, you want to be building a more adaptive organization. If you accept that you're in an adaptive challenge, you're facing an adaptive challenge, and you accept yeah. that you should lead the process, not dictate the outcomes, then what? Yeah. How do you, what's the next piece of advice? Uh, yeah. you, you mentioned appreciative inquiries. That, is that the starting point, or where do you start as a leader? So the next piece of advice is you need to frame that adaptive challenge in a way that's going to capture the energy and attention of the stakeholders you need to, the people who are going to have to change. Okay. How do you do that? Well, um, that's part of the art of it. But so let me give you an example. So I'm working with this supply chain organization. All their processes are out of control. They've got an antiquated IT system. People in the, in the organization, a good day is not getting yelled at, Hmm. Um, you know, and, and as far as the leadership's concerned, you know, the way to create sanity would be to create much greater standardization of their work processes, mm-hmm. but they've had a number of failed attempts to do that. And let's face it, if, if you go out to the workforce and you say, we'd like to engage you in helping to standardize your work processes, mm-hmm. would you like to get, you know, they're not going to be interested in that. Right. So, but what, what their workforce was really interested in is, is, you know, getting the right stuff to the right people at the right time, mm-hmm. having happy internal customers, right? So the way we framed it was stress-free customer service. Hmm. And we said to, you know, everybody in this organization, we want to increase, you know, the stress-free customer service, and we'd like to engage you in what I call generative conversations. And and, and those are like events where, and usually they're large group events, where you want to bring the Mm -hmm. variety of stakeholders, ideally the whole organization, into a room for a day or two. And through a series of processes, appreciative inquiry is one of them, there's many of them, you know, have people who have similar interests and ideas find each other and propose an, and, and develop an idea that they want to act on that's going to help increase stress-free customer mm-hmm. service. And you want to launch as many as possible. 
And then this is leadership's main job here then is to track what happens and get behind what works and find ways to nurture it, amplify it, embed it, you know, scale it up. Mm -hmm. And uh, the stuff that doesn't work will fall away. So how do you know with this framing, uh, this makes a lot of sense It kind of, it's almost it energizes and engages. How do you know when you're doing it well? There's a lot of energy. Hmm. So people respond, yeah. they're, they're keen to participate. Yeah. They're keen to participate. You'll, you'll get a bunch of ideas come out of it. Things start to happen. And then, um, and at the, and what's really important is how you work, what happens after these events. Right. So, uh, in the case of the stress-free customer service guys, one of the things, the first one, they had like 12 different pilot projects came out mm -hmm. of a group of 60 people. Some of them were quick wins, but some of them were much more complex than any small group could manage. And they realized four of them had a lot of interdependencies and overlap, and they brought the leaders of those four groups together into kind of a design team to then run another event. Um, and they let and and this involved unionized shop floor workers and warehouses and mm. stuff um, who decided that the best way to create stress-free customer service for a certain part of this organization was to reduce the turnaround time it took from the um, uh, an order coming in from their regions into the warehouse from three days to one, which, first of all, the managers thought, like, what the hell? <laughs> like, you know, and and, and then... They ran this thing, and like at one point, they had we had teams of warehouse guys, you know, in hard hats and stuff, roaming around, pointing at stuff, building <laughs> prototypes of how they could reorganize wow. the warehouse to make this happen. And and this is what will blow your mind. And they reduced turnaround time in six weeks. They went from wow. three days to one. I know. And now, in, in a typical plan change project process, right? Like. At best, you you bring people together and they would come up with ideas and then you'd give them to management. Right. Right? And can you imagine what would happen six weeks later? Nothing. They'd still be talking about it. <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> so it's really an inversion. I mean, it's really an inversion of traditional, as you said, you referenced command and control, you reference, you know, top-down yeah. top leadership. It's about framing the opportunity and creating that engagement. And, you'll, and as you said, you know, the sign is you see the excitement, you see the energy. And, and to, to, to manage transformational change, people have to care. They're not, they're not going to put the time and energy in something they don't care about. So once you yeah. get that caring, once they're like, they're energized, so you see the positives, the ideas framed, people are like keen to come. So you set up these sessions. What's the key to, you know, making them work <laughs> and having something good yeah. come of them? Because I imagine well, that's where, you know, great ideas just kind of fall flat very often. Well, no, actually, if you've got a good purpose, mm -hmm. you almost don't even have to run it. Hmm. Like there's like one of the one of the methodologies is called open space. And okay. basically what happens there is a large group of people assemble and open space works really well when you've got something people really care about, there's a lot of urgency, there's conflict, there's a lot of heat, hmm. and people just come in and they build their own agenda. Hmm. And what and the way it works is um People who have something, they, you know, an issue they want to talk about, a, a problem they want to work on, they, they say, I want to do this, and I'm going to be in this room at this time. Oh, wow. and, and you create a wall where there's an agenda of stuff, and then people just go where they want to go. Huh. Okay. And, and, and <laughs> it's very freeform. <laughs> totally freeform. And let me tell you, there are examples of open space doing things like, like uh, you know, taking a problem 
that a tech company had spent 10 months working on getting mm-hmm. nowhere and solving it in two days. Hmm. Yeah. Like, but yeah. people have to care. People See, have that's to the care. Key thing. They have to care. And it also goes back to what strikes me. It goes back to what you were saying earlier, which is almost this like, you have to let, if you're in the leadership role, you have to let go of the control of the process or, or, or you know, to your point, my mind went to like, well, how should you structure this agenda? You know, what should happen? You're like, actually, that's mm-hmm. the wrong way to go about it. Is mm-hmm. that right? That you, you, it's almost like you have to trust your people. If you've done the job of framing, right. the, am, am I, am I going down the right path here? Well, I think what my argument would be that if you got a purpose people care about, they'll self-organize to accomplish that purpose if you get out of the way. However, you know, there, there, does, there usually needs to be a period of discovery or inquiry, like where we, where we get more information. Now, what kind of information is required is going to be different in different situations. Then there needs to be a period where people get a sense of what other people are thinking and wanting, right? And, because, and, and one of the things we've learned is that the quality of ideas and innovations that emerge are better the more diversity you have in the room. Right. So, in fact, a lot of these things work even better if you've got customers in the room, suppliers in the room. I mean, depending on the nature of the issue you're trying to solve, you know, whoever is going to be affected by it should be invited to the conversation is my my rule. And then so part of that time is you're going to have people in there who don't know each other. So you need to create some opportunities for people to find each other and discover they have a similar interest or a similar set of ideas. And then they naturally, and then give them opportunities to naturally form into sort of self-organized small groups that are focused on something and time to come up with an idea. And then you want some kind of a launch. And what needs to happen at a launch is, is that people commit to do something and the leaders kind of praise and bless that. And it's not like they pick winners. It's more like allies sitting around a fire talking about how to, you know, how to take on the battle tomorrow, Uh, but really encouraging everyone who's got an idea to just go try, because no one knows ahead of time what's really going to make a difference. Right. Yeah. Hmm. And so you try and you learn as you go. And part of what that does is it gives people in the trenches the message that, I, you know, if I got a good idea, I can act on it. Right. And so you're building a more adaptive organization because everybody's brains are being brought to the table. You don't have people just sitting around waiting to be told Hmm. what to do, which is what happens in a lot of organizations. Yeah, it certainly is. Um, One tool you mentioned of use when you begin to bring people together is appreciative inquiry. Can you you talk a bit more about that, what it is, and, and how leaders should think about using it? Appreciative inquiry is starts by paying attention to what's working what we want more of. And typically how that works is, let's say you want improved customer service. So what you want to do is engage all the people who interact with customers in an inquiry where they look at, well, you know, what's the best customer service I've ever had? And what was the nature of that? And people tell stories and you use those stories about, you know, peak experiences of customer service to do a kind of a discovery where we collectively start to map out what do we know about what great customer service is actually mm-hmm. like because we've experienced it. And then you go from there and you, you, you do something where you collectively talk about if we were going to be an exceptionally fantastic customer service organization, what would we be like? Hmm. And kind of develop a collective sense of what we really care about around here and what that would look like. 
And then you move into what's called design. And at, at that point then is you, you give people the opportunity to form into groups around the issues they want to work on, and they come up with their own solutions that they want to act on. And then you launch those. So it's helping people tell these stories of, of what was, what is, and, and what could be. And almost the richness yeah. of that creates the engagement. Yeah. And it's, it's, it really works well when you're working with uh, uh, stakeholders who come from different parts of an organization that are in conflict, hmm. or you're dealing with um, different organizations that don't have a sense of collective we, you know, or right. like or, or like in a union management kind of situation that where it's been tense in the past. Like any place where, where there's, there's tension in the system and not a lot of sense of we, one of the, like, one of the amazing things that happens with appreciative inquiry is, is people inquire into what's really important and meaningful to them. Um, they discover all this commonality. Hmm. And, and, and so the questions that drive that inquiry are really critical. And this is something that's true about these generative and dialogic change processes in general, is the questions are so important. Um, and that's about managing the process. So leaders need to have good questions. Hmm. Not so much, there. and and then other people will come up with the ideas. And that, that that's a really important point because I think about leaders who prep typically for offsites, group discussions, and they never prep the questions. They prep what they want to say. Right. So like, it's a real that's, inversion again of uh, yeah, how you should think about yeah. it. Yeah, that's probably that's a great point. A- another concept you mentioned is uh, is this concept of generative imaging. I think you said. It, it allows people to have new conversations and you know think of new options. Tell me about this concept and how it plays into this process. Yeah, okay. Well, I stumbled on it when I was studying what was going on in small teams um, that I was using appreciative inquiry with. And one of the things I noticed was when teams were stuck and they were offered the opportunity for people to tell stories, their best of stories around the best team they were ever in, um, what would occasionally happen was someone would offer an, uh, you know, an image, which would be a couple of words that would unstick the group. Hmm. And um, as I studied it more, let me give you, an, I think, the iconic example of a generative image. Okay. You know, back in the, um, in the late 80s, um, business people and environmentalists had nothing to say to each other. Like, I don't remember if you remember this, but like, Business people thought all environmentalists were like, you know, tree huggers. Right. Yeah, live on the beach and eat bananas and live in peasant agrarian societies. <laughs> and, and and environmentalists thought all business people were lunatics driving spaceship Earth into a death spiral. <laughs> <laughs> right? How far and, we've come. <laughs> and, you know, and something happened in 1987 that so transformed that set of relationships that um, after years of, of yelling, listen to us, listen to us. Business, government, all of a sudden turned to environmental groups and said, okay, we're listening. What should we do? And, and that change was so rapid and so profound that Greenpeace Canada um, almost imploded um, hmm. because all of a sudden they were going, holy cow, like, are we going to get on the boards of companies and, and certify the greenness of their products? Or, you know, can we trust, trust these bad? And a huge fight broke out. The, the organization almost fell apart. That's how radical a transformation was, and it happened in the space of months. And so when I give this talk in companies, I say, what do you think happened? And people, you know, what usually comes back is like, you know, Chernobyl 
or uh, mm. Exxon Valdez, mm-hmm. right? And um, actually, those happened at different times. What happened in 1987 was, of all things, a UN commission issued a report called the Brundtland Commission. And in that report was a generative image. And that generative image was sustainable development. And, and sustainable development, it's like you, t- you stick two words together that all of a sudden um, take what seem to be opposites, mm-hmm. right? Well, you could either be for development or you could be for the environment, but you couldn't be for both. And, said, and, and that, the, those two words opened up a space where a whole different set of conversations hmm. could now start to take place. People could start to imagine things that, that they could do that they could never imagine before, because before it was either or, hmm. right? And now it's both and. And, um, you know, 25, 30 years later, sustainable development is still throwing off innovation, mm-hmm. even though no one can define what it is. Right. right? But then you're right. It drives that fusion of business and environmentalism to yeah. this day. And, yeah. And, um, and one of the qualities of a good generative image is that it's ambiguous at the same time as it's appealing, right? Hmm. It's appealing, but we don't really know how to do it. But it looks good to me, and it, it makes and and using it allows me to step into a different set of conversations than I've had in the past. That moves us, that allows us to self-organize in the direction that leadership wants us to go. It almost sounds like a, a vision, you know, in the sense of like I think yeah, about companies. It's quite different. It's okay. Quite different from okay. What's the yeah. difference? Well, see, a vision is 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 a picture of where you want to end up at a point okay. in time, whereas a purpose. And a generative image is an example of a good purpose statement, but a purpose is what you want to be doing every day. Mm-hmm. There are many different ways to accomplish a purpose. Typically, a vision is a, is a, a way to accomplish a purpose that a leader has come up with. Okay. Right. Let me give you an example. Let's say our purpose is to delight our customers. That's mm-hmm. what we want to do every day. Mm-hmm. And the leadership team decides their vision is is to have 100% on-time delivery within the next 12 months. Mm-hmm. Okay? All right. So now, what does that do to people at the front lines whose customers don't care about on-time delivery? They got other needs. Mm. Right? And it might even be that this on-time delivery purpose gets in the way of them being able to satisfy those other customer needs. And what happens to all the other ideas they have about all the other ways that could be delighting hmm. their customers? And what happens to their energy and motivation when it feels like what the company's doing with this on-time delivery thing is actually getting in their way of being able to delight their customers? And how many times have people have experienced that? <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. so the yeah. vision just has the opposite effect in that case. It can. It's an and attempt so, to channel the effort, but it doesn't do what we've been talking about here, which is have an image right. that you know, is broad enough to capture people's minds and hearts and, and get engaged. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, if you have, if you have a vision that's powerful and appealing, people will follow you because people, people want to know where to go. And one of the things that, that gets in the way of leaders being able to operate out of this generative space is that, you know, to do that, they have to say, I don't know the answer, but I know the question, and I'm hmm. going to hold the space, and I'm going to invite you to engage in this question. And there's a certain percentage of people who don't like that. They want to be told what <laughs> I to I would do. guess it's a fairly high percentage. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it's that high. Yeah. I, I guess it's about 25%. Oh, so, sorry. I was know. thinking more, there's a high percentage of leaders who would, be, who would rather give the order than ask the question. <laughs> I don't know if that's true, you know? Like everywhere I've worked where I've offered this, uh, this mm-hmm. generative approach, 
leaders just like, oh my yeah. God, the burden is off my shoulders. Because hmm. hmm. I've been asked to come up with a solution to a problem. I don't know the damn solution to. Well, you know? well, I think you're right. You know, if you're in there giving license to it and their leaders give license, but if you're, if you're kind of asked to come up with the solution by your boss or by the board or what have you yeah it's it's tough to swim against the current and say you know what my job is not to give you a solution my job is to ask the questions and and frankly we'll see what the solution is i mean i think that takes a particularly courageous leader to do that and so maybe that's it, it the, has to be yeah it has to be when your board doesn't understand it but you know like jim hansen's last book was on companies that that thrive in complexity right and what he found was the companies that thrive in complexity, they don't have a vision. Hmm. That, that's not what works. What they, he called it, um, shoot bullets, then cannonballs. That's <laughs> right. what they right? Right. It's like, take a shot, take a shot, take a shot. Oh, we hit something. It's like the, the, the drill shallow holes concept. <laughs> yeah. You know, so, yeah. So, so one more yeah. question for you on the generative image. Yeah. Okay. So you've defined, you know, what makes it compelling. How do you create one? Oh. That's art. I mean, maybe I we have a whole a other podcast that, on that. <laughs> I had a formula for that, but I can tell you some great ones I've run into. Yeah, sure. Um, and you know, and it, it usually you got to engage some of the stakeholders first. You got to figure out what people care about, right? Um, but you can do it any. Like I did this with Saudi mining engineers. If you can do this with Saudi mining engineers, you can do it with anybody, right? So they're trying to increase safety in their mining operations, and they've done all the usual things. They've gone out, they've checked out best practices, policies, and procedures. They're trying to drill these procedures down, but they're getting total resistance from mm-hmm. their workforce because they experience these as all making their work more, you know, harder. Mm-hmm. Like one guy was saying to me, like, I'm in the plant, and this guy's doing, put on your damn gloves. And the guy says, I have to go over there and get my gloves. I'm just going to pick up the box and move, you know. So, and, and they're, not, they're not moving the dial on their safety measures at all, mm-hmm. and they're feeling a lot of pain. And so I taught them this technique, and you know what they came up with? No. Easy safety. Easy safety. I like it. So, and again, it kind of fits with the sustainable <laughs> development. Two uh, contrasting concepts knitted together. It sometimes is two contrasting concepts. Well, let me give you another story. So, um, you know, Monsanto, a lot of people don't like Monsanto. From a business story point of view, however, Monsanto is amazing, right? Mm-hmm. Like. 15 years ago, it was a failing conglomerate hmm. with a lot of different little pieces that didn't make any sense to anybody, and they were like not doing well in any of the little businesses they were in, some agribusiness, some uh, chemicals, some this and that. New CEO came in, looked at the variety of stuff in the mix, and said, you know what I think we need to do? I think we need to, we need to feed a hungry planet. Hmm. Right? brought together the heads of all these different companies and, and all the scientists and that. So mm-hmm. how do we feed a hungry planet? And, and, and created these generative processes mm-hmm. and these people came up, like started working across silos to come up with all sorts of innovations. And within a couple of years, Monsanto was kicking butt with right. all its competitors. Like in, yeah, I mean, yeah, I like not that. everybody's happy with what they came up with. But, <laughs> but the image, <laughs> I understand the power of the image and to, you know, yeah. to engage people, because as you said, you know, it's broad enough, and it's not a vision. I like it. It's you know, it's more like a, an idea of what's possible. Is that is that a fair yeah. way to describe it? Well, I call it a purpose. What's a purpose. our purpose? Yeah. And our purpose is what we're trying to do every day, and we may never accomplish it. Mm-hmm. If it's a really stretched purpose, we'll never accomplish it. Mm-hmm. You know, end world hunger. But I mean, it, but it gives meaning to the work we do, and 
an empowerment for people to come up with the ideas yeah. to do it. Yeah, we care about it. So it, you can have a purpose, and then is it one the people that work for you care about? I mean, those are two separate questions, mm-hmm. right? But if you put them together, then people will naturally do what needs to be done. You just have to get out of their way. That's a good final thought for uh, for leaders now. I mean, we're we are in a um, a time of great change. Um, what was the term you used again to describe the kinds of challenges and changes we're facing now? Adaptive challenges. We're facing adaptive challenges. Everyone listening is either leading through one or part of you know tackling one, and so. You know, what I'm taking away from our conversation is really first to recognize that. Second, to understand as a leader, it's not your job. And in fact, you're going to be much less effective if you're prescribing the path. But third, your job is really to ask the questions and frame the ideas and the with the images that engage people in the in this challenges. Would you um, and, have and I got follow right? up? And that yes, but then most importantly, once you launch all these little mm-hmm. pilot projects, follow up, mm-hmm. track what's going on, find ways to nurture, amplify, and embed the successful ideas. And if you do that, like my latest book, The Dynamics of Generative Change, what happened in this uh, warehouse case was they went from a pencil and paper operation to a fully digital mobile <laughs> operation in 18 months without a plan, without a vision, without a budget, without a training program, no Gantt charts, right? They did it through a generative change process mm-hmm. by tracking and amplifying the natural momentum that the people in this, the organization were creating because they cared about stress-free customer service. And the, the term is so memorable. Um, so, I, yeah, I can see why the work matters. Look, you know, you know, you have a lot of content available. You teach. For people who are listening who want to know more, and I'm sure – People will be keen to, you know, dig deeper into your concepts. Where do you recommend that they go? They can go to my personal website, JervisBush.ca. Now, no one knows how to spell Jervis. <laughs> yeah, spell it <laughs> out for us. We can put it in the show notes, too, so people have the link. Okay. That'd be great. Yeah, it's that's a, great. And you're on YouTube yeah. as well. I've watched some of your videos. Uh, okay. So you're there. In them. And what's your latest book? Tell us about that one. It's called The Dynamics of Generative Change. It's written for organization development consultants, and the way it's written is it, it tells the story of this change, and then it explain, explains the sort of theory behind why the consultant did what, in this case me, why I did what I did in each of the phases of that generative change model that I was describing to you. So hmm. identify the adaptive challenge, reframe into a purpose statement, preferably a generative image, then orchestrate a series of generative conversations, in order to launch self-organized innovations, pilot projects, um, you know, learn as you go and then scale up and embed the successful yeah. ones. Yeah. I can, I can see why you're good at what you do. I mean, it's really, um, it's really a prescription for the kind of leadership I think the world needs right now and that people in organizations would embrace. So I appreciate you taking the time to share with me. Thanks, Bart. Hope you enjoyed that episode today a interesting look of kind of deep academic research into how to get people to actually change and how to apply it through communication something that i know everyone who wants to lead today needs to do if you check out the show notes we've got links to clear leadership and uh, it's well worth taking a look at the site and if you're interested i know they have some training that you can take next time on the inspire podcast i welcome a special guest jen harper She's the founder of Cheekbone Beauty, which is a 
cosmetics brand. You may have seen it in stores like Sephora nationally. And, and what makes it special and what makes Jen's story so powerful is it's a brand designed to give visibility profile to indigenous girls who have been uh, often forgotten and underrepresented in uh, beauty product lines. So Jen's story uh, is quite remarkable. She had no background in cosmetics and beauty, none at all, and yet had a dream, literally, to create this business. And today it's a thriving uh, business. So she joins me, shares her own story. It's a, a powerful testament to the power of belief in representation and an entrepreneurial belief in what a business can be. So tune in for that episode. And uh, in the meantime, if you're enjoying the Inspire podcast, rate, review it, really appreciate it. Helps the show get noticed. So until then, go forth and inspire. <laughs>